Dear Lord, we are grateful for your kindness to us in so many ways. We're grateful, Lord, most of all, that you have given your son to die for sinners like us. We pray, Lord, that as your word is preached this morning, that your name would be glorified and that your people would be edified. We pray you'd give me grace to be clear and to be helpful to your people for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. As you've heard, my name is Emeka Okechuku, and I serve as one of the elders at the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. And I bring you warm greetings from ECCD. We are so encouraged, Grace Charger, by your steadfastness and by your faithfulness to the gospel. I can assure you that we remember you often in our Sunday morning prayers. Um, we count it a privilege that we can support the work that the Lord is doing here in Charger. And I, I count it a privilege that I can share the word with you this morning. So our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 from verses 7 to 18. So that's 2 Corinthians 4 from verse 7. So as you turn there, let me remind you that the early Christians were not highly regarded people. A man called Celsus was a Greek philosopher and an outspoken critic of Christians and Christianity in the second century. One of his many criticisms of Christianity was how unimpressive Christians were. They were not, so to speak, cool or cultured. He declared, their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. If Jesus were God, Celsus argued, then he would have appeared to the illustrious and the educated men of the empire. But only the poor and despised were Christians. So the argument was that if Christians themselves were not people to be regarded, then surely the message they brought was to be discarded. As if that wasn't bad enough, Christians also seemed to suffer unduly for their faith. You see, Christians refused to pay tributes and to participate in the civic festivals that showed respect to the many pagan gods. And since these gods were thought to provide protection to the community, Christians were blamed whenever anything went wrong. Tertullian was one of the apologists in the early church, and he wrote, If the Tiber floods the city, or the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. Not much has changed since then. You know, Christians today are still usually not the elite or highly regarded of society. The question can still be asked, if the message of Christianity is as great as its proponents claim, then shouldn't its messengers be people of relevance and significance? And just like in the early church, Christians still suffer for their faith. In parts of the world, followers of Jesus are regularly persecuted and killed. Even in the Western world, identifying as a Christian or standing up for Christian values can bring scorn or suffering. 
Christians don't even seem to be shielded from the suffering that the rest of the world goes through. Christians still lose their jobs, they get sick, they have problems with their families. If the message of Christianity is as great as it's claimed, why do its messengers suffer so much? If you and I must pay a price to follow Jesus, are we sure that the price is really worth it? Our text this morning will hopefully help us to answer those questions. So first, a big bit of background about the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole. The Apostle Paul was writing to a troubled church. It was a church that he had planted some years earlier. And these people were not successful in the world's eyes. They were not admired in Roman society. In fact, they were afflicted. And Paul the Apostle seems to be the most afflicted of all. But Paul wrote to remind them of the greatness of the gospel of God, what Paul called a treasure. So look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. But this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now trouble was brewing in the church at Corinth. While Paul was gone, some new teachers had come into the life of the Corinthian church, and these teachers were questioning whether Paul really was an apostle of Jesus. Paul, they said, did not look or sound like an apostle. This is what they said in chapter 10, verse 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul, they said, did not look like a special messenger. He wasn't impressive in appearance. He didn't even sound like an apostle. His speech was not marked by the great eloquence that was common in the famous orators of those days. These new teachers also argued that Paul suffered too much to truly be a messenger of the gospel. What sort of messenger could he be and what sort of message could he be bringing if his life was marked by suffering and weakness? They questioned Paul's motives and they questioned Paul's courage. They even questioned Paul's willingness to preach for free. Divisions were rising, trouble 
was brewing in the church. The book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to the situation in the church. He is writing to the majority of the church in Corinth who still believed in his ministry. He's writing in response to the accusations of these new teachers who he forcefully denounces as false teachers. Paul is defending his ministry because he believes that if the Corinthian church accepted these false teachers, it was a first step in their, in their accepting a false gospel. So that's the, the background of the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul is seeking to vindicate his apostolic ministry. He's seeking by this letter to convince the members of the church that despite his sufferings, he truly was an apostle, a special messenger of the gospel, and that they should not be deceived into believing a gospel other than the one he had proclaimed to them. And so early on in the book, he reminds them of what that gospel message is that he had proclaimed to them. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 5, the verses just before our text this morning. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the message that he and Timothy and their other companions had proclaimed to the Corinthians, unlike the message of the false apostles, was primarily about Jesus Christ. The message was that Jesus Christ was Lord. And then Paul goes on to give one of the most striking descriptions of what happens when God sovereignly applies that message of the gospel to someone's heart. So how does someone become a Christian? Well, Paul reaches back and he uses the language of creation in Genesis where God says, let there be light. Paul says that just as God spoke light into being in the midst of darkness at the beginning of the world, so God by his sovereign will and power, had shone light into the darkness of Paul's own heart. And so God shines light into the dark hearts of all those who would be Christians. God's light dispels the darkness in our hearts and creates new life. So it's kind of like when you're sleeping in a dark room with all the curtains pulled tight or in a room with blackout curtains. So I love having total darkness in the room while I sleep. The challenge, of course, is that there's often a gap between the curtain and the wall, or the curtain shifts in the middle of the night, and then the sun rises. You know, and morning light breaks through the gap into the, in the curtain right into your face. And all it takes is for that one beam of light to shine through one crack, and that total darkness is broken. And that's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Light shines, and darkness is broken. Darkness is gone. And what is that light? It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a realization of and a rejoicing in the beauty of Jesus. And this realization, the realization that there is no one like Jesus, that there is no one that you need but Jesus, comes through the gospel. It comes through the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The good news of Jesus has the power to shine light into dark hearts and to transform lives. And Paul said that this was the glorious gospel that he proclaimed. But, notice that first word in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
And now we come to our text for this morning, where we see that the, the true Christian life always involves three things. It always involves weakness, faith, and glory. So those are the three headings for our passage this morning. Weakness, faith, and glory. First, weakness. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now the, the treasure of the life-transforming gospel message was not carried in gold cups or in diamond-studded vessels, but in jars of clay. Now, such jars made of clay were, were common in almost every household in the ancient Near East. They were cheap and unattractive, and because they were fragile, they were regarded as disposable, expendable. Paul is saying that he is like one of those clay pots. The indescribably priceless gospel treasure is being carried by relatively insignificant, unattractive, and fragile ministers such as him. And Paul goes on to say that this is no accident. There is a reason why this precious news is heralded by frail messengers. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's not due to Paul's personality or Paul's talent. Paul says his weakness ensures that it is seen that the transforming power of the gospel is from God. What does this weakness that display, displays God's power look like in Paul's own life? It describes this with four statements, four contrasts. Have a look at verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul gives four contrasts. And the first part of each of these contrasts shows his weakness. He was afflicted in every way. That means he was surrounded by troubles. He was perplexed. That speaks of moments when he was bewildered, he was confused, he didn't know what to do. He was persecuted. He was hounded by opponents of the gospel. And he was struck down. He was beaten by men. Paul gives more details later on in the book. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. There he says he had received countless beatings and was often near death. He goes on to say, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. <clears throat> Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's opponents said he had suffered too much. Paul says here, you have no idea. Paul had experienced great physical and emotional pain throughout the course of his ministry. These sufferings are what Paul is referring to when he says that he's a jar of clay. These trials showed his weakness. Now, most of these problems in Paul's life arose from Paul's particular calling as an apostle. 
So remember, the apostles were the hand-selected ambassadors, the spokesmen of Jesus Christ. And just as their master, they too suffered. But Paul elsewhere warned that this would be true for all Christians. You know, we, we, we read these word, words and we want to tell Paul, I know what you mean, I know what that feels like. But Paul isn't looking for pity. Paul is saying that these experiences, this weakness, was a platform to display God's power in his ministry. Let's have a look at the second part of those four contrasts. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Only God could have enabled Paul to endure such trials. Paul isn't extolling his self-sufficiency or his steadfast courage. No, he's saying that it was only because of the all-surpassing power of God that he was not crushed, not in despair, not abandoned, not destroyed. His sufferings, Paul said, were used by God to display God's sustaining power. Paul's opponents said that his sufferings were proof that he wasn't a real apostle. But Paul says no. The hardships and afflictions and his perseverance through them were the badge that showed that he was a true apostle. You know, this teaching about God's power being displayed in weakness is true for all believers. In fact, it's a theme that runs through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. Have a look with me at chapter 12, verse 7. So just turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So it's one of the famous passages in this book. This is Paul speaking. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, despite his prayers, was never removed by God. Instead, what Paul received was the sufficient, empowering grace of God to bear with his suffering. Brothers and sisters, often in our lives as Christians, it is not sudden, miraculous deliverance from adversity that reveals the power of God. But it is endurance in the midst of adversity that most profoundly reveals the power of God. Don't get me wrong, the Lord can miraculous, miraculously deliver. He does this. Christians can pray for healing and for the Lord's provision and for the Lord's protection. Indeed, Paul himself had experienced miraculous delivery from trials in his ministry. But here, when he was showing how the power of God was displayed in his ministry, he points to how the Lord had preserved him and had strengthened him in the midst of his trials. You know, sometimes in our minds, endurance in the midst of adversity doesn't sound miraculous enough. 
Sometimes we think that perseverance sounds too mundane. But Paul is clear here that the power of God is displayed not in health and wealth, as some people would have you believe, but in the ability to endure and rejoice in the midst of adversity. Like a wise man once said, anyone can worship Santa Claus. But to worship God in the midst of affliction, because we trust that he's at work in and through our suffering, that is the ultimate testimony of God's power. So praise God and rejoice in God's goodness when you finally get a job after a long season of unemployment. But as you look back on the weeks or months of uncertainty, when you think of the moments of despair that you passed through, rejoice also in the power of God that strengthened you and sustained you in the midst of your trials. And yes, your your brothers and sisters in Christ can pray for God to heal you when you are sick. God can and does heal sickness either through his miraculous intervention or through medical care. But may they also pray that you will know God's all-surpassing power to sustain you even if he chooses not to heal you. May they pray that like Paul, in the period of weakness, though you are perplexed, you will not be in despair. Though you are cast down, you will not be destroyed. Is it a surprise that God would use weakness to show his strength and his power? The hinge of human history is the glorious display of God's power through the weakness of Jesus. Like a jar of clay, Jesus was counted as insignificant and unattractive. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Even more so than Paul, Jesus knew suffering and trials. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Jesus' weakness culminated in his death. He was crucified in weakness. On the cross, Jesus, the only Son of God, bore the wrath of God for all those who would turn and believe in him. On the cross, this jar of clay was broken. On the cross, this jar of clay was crushed for our iniquities. But through through his weakness came power. After three days, Jesus rose again in glorious resurrection power. And that same power brings new life to men and women who were dead in their sin and who turned to trust in Jesus. And Paul sees this. Paul sees that the death and resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate display of God's power coming from weakness, of life coming from death. So let's turn back to our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul here is expressing what he has already already spoken about in terms of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying that as he proclaims the crucified and risen Lord, he finds that what he's proclaiming in his message is also exemplified in his life. Those two verses are parallel. He's saying the same thing in slightly different ways. 
Paul says in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And again in verse 11, we who live always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He's referring to his suffering as an apostle. Paul is saying that he is following in the path of suffering of his Savior. But praise God that there is a so that halfway through verses 10 and 11, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies and so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. On the one hand, Paul is subjected daily to suffering, to death, but on the other hand, he is continually upheld and made to experience the sustaining power of the risen life of Christ. And in verse 12, Paul goes one step further. Have a look at verse 12. Paul goes on to say, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That same power, that resurrection life, also works through Paul to bring life to others. When Christians suffer, we too, like Paul, can take courage from the fact that our lives will in some way mediate to others the power of the resurrection, either through God's act of deliverance, or even more profoundly, through the testimony of our endurance and our holiness. So as your family members mock you and deride you for your faith in Jesus, it may hurt. It may feel difficult. It may feel like death. But as they see you by the sustaining power of God, persevere in believing and in living a life that commands the gospel, the Lord can use your suffering to open their eyes to the beauty and the worth of Jesus. He may, as it were, use your death to bring them life. Paul kept proclaiming the gospel in the midst of his suffering and his weakness. What was it that encouraged his proclamation of the gospel message? Well, that brings us to our second point, faith. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Paul trusted in the transforming power of the gospel And so he proclaimed the gospel despite his suffering. And Paul says that he wasn't the first to do this. He stands in a long line of saints who had suffered, but who had trusted in God and proclaimed the truths about God. Paul quotes the psalmist from Psalm 116, which we read earlier, where the psalmist maintains his faith in the midst of his sufferings. In verse 10 of the psalm, the psalmist continues to trust God even as he speaks, even as he announces that he's under oppression for his enemy. So too with Paul. I believed and so I spoke. How could Paul keep speaking even when it resulted in troubles and trials? Verse 14. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Paul knows that one day he will be resurrected and he will stand before God with the believers in Corinth. How could he be so sure? Well, because Jesus had been resurrected. Paul believed that the resurrection of Jesus was a pledge, was a guarantee of the believer's future resurrection. And so Paul wouldn't be silenced. Notice Paul's second reason for persisting in proclaiming the gospel despite his trials. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit. 
so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul labored in ministry so that the grace, God's grace in Christ Jesus would reach not only the Corinthian church, but more and more people beyond them. He longed for an eruption of praise from people's hearts, an overflow of thanksgiving to God for his mercy, for his patience, for his grace. And this would ultimately result in glory to God. The aim of gospel ministry is not so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's not so that we can avoid hardships in this life. No, the aim of gospel ministry is ultimately the glory of God. That more and more people would see through Christ the supreme value of God and that they would worship him wholeheartedly from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Grace, Sharjah, may you never lose your zeal for the spread of the gospel. Okay, may your heartfelt desire as a church always be that more and more people in many nations would respond to the news of the gospel of the grace of God with joyful thanksgiving. Paul's faith to continue proclaiming the gospel was strengthened by his knowledge of the coming resurrection and by the glory that would be ascribed to God as more and more people heard the gospel message. So Paul did all of this amidst weakness. He persevered in ministry through faith. faith. But what was Paul's final hope? That's our third and final point. Glory. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Despite the suffering and weaknesses, despite the challenges in proclaiming the gospel, though there was plenty of, re- plenty of reason to be discouraged, he and his companions were not disheartened. Why not? He goes on. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, when Paul speaks of the outer self wasting away, he's speaking not just of the body growing old and of being physically sick. No, he's also speaking of the trials and sufferings that mark this fallen world. See, when looked at from a certain perspective, the trials in the life of a Christian can seem to be, at best, pointless or even a waste. But Paul is saying that there's something going on in the midst of the trials that is not immediately evident. Okay, there is an inner transformation that is going on which may not be obvious even to the Christian. As the Christian goes through suffering and as they endure and grow in holiness, they are being transformed into something that will only one day become evident. Just like the scaffolding will one day come off uh, a beautiful building and the day-by-day construction work will finally give way to a shiny new skyscraper. So one day, the life of suffering will end. And the glorious life that is being shaped will finally be visible to all. And then Paul goes on to describe this truth even more profoundly in verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
You know, you should read the first part of that verse and be puzzled. Light and momentary. Paul, you are beaten numerous times, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, cold and exposed, hungry and thirsty, always in danger. Paul responds, it was light and not heavy. Paul, this happens throughout the course of your ministry and will continue till what will most likely be a painful death. Paul says it was momentary, not lasting. You know, you read the first part of that verse and you think of your own life. And for some of us, for a lot of us, that sounds hollow. It doesn't sound real. Light, Paul, light, some of us want to say. Paul, for several years now, I have been persecuted at work for being a Christian. I sometimes don't even want to go to work in the morning because of the mocking of my co-workers. My career has totally stalled because I try to take a stand for what is right. Paul, it is hard and it doesn't feel light. Paul, some would want to say, I have clinical depression, which makes it difficult to get out of bed in the morning. Even the simplest day-to-day activities are so difficult and I have a weight in my soul that I can't shake. Paul, this doesn't feel light. And momentary, Paul, momentary, you want to say, you want to say, Paul, I have a child with special needs and though I love him to bits, it can be so difficult. Every day has its own challenges. Every day has its own trials. And I know that I will have to take care of him by God's grace for the rest of my life. Paul, this doesn't feel momentary. You want to say, Paul, I have lived with excruciating chronic pain for many years now. The doctors give me medicine and it helps a little bit, but not completely. They say there is no cure and I'll have to live with it for the rest of my life. Paul, I live with this pain every day and it doesn't feel momentary. But then you keep reading the verse and you realize that Paul is trying to show us something about our trials. Notice that Paul says that our sufferings are preparing something for us. Our suffering is not pointless. For a Christian, every affliction, every trouble, every tear shed is achieving something. It's preparing something for us. Paul knows that suffering is hard, but he's saying that they are light and momentary in comparison to something. In comparison to what? Well, first, in comparison to something that is eternal. That's why Paul calls our afflictions momentary. Our trials will come to an end someday, either in this life or or upon our death. But they are preparing something for us that will never, ever end. Something that will last for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, if eternity was the length of Sheikh Zayed Road from Ras al-Khaimah to Abu Dhabi, then even a lifetime of suffering is but a centimeter on that road. Our afflictions are momentary. They are temporary in comparison to eternity. But an eternity of what? An eternity of glory that is beyond all comparison. There is a weight of goodness coming that makes every sadness that we go through in this life seem light in comparison. But what is that goodness? Do we have hints in the Bible of this glory to come that is beyond all comparison? 
Well, in the very next chapter, Paul begins to sketch out that glory. He tells us that our mortality will one day be swallowed up by life. Elsewhere in scripture, Paul speaks further about this when he teaches that one day our present human bodies, which die, will be put away. And believers will receive a resurrection body that will last forever. No more sickness. No more pain. No growing old. No more wasting away of our bodies. No more death. But is there any more to this glory that makes it beyond comparison? Well, the Bible also speaks of the glory of a restored universe, a new heaven and earth. No more flooding, no more earthquakes, no more famine. No corrupt governments, no poverty, no crime. And the Bible teaches that Christians will reign in Christ in this restored universe. The Bible also speaks of the glory of living sinless lives. We learn that in the age to come, Christians will be pure and blameless with their old sinful nature finally put away once and for all. Our desires will be perfect. You will not want to sin and you will not want to want to sin. No more fighting temptation. No more lust. No more greed. No more unbelief. And still we ask, is there any more to this glory that makes it beyond all comparison? Do we get an even clearer view of the glory that is to come? For that, listen as I read Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is there any more to this glory that makes it beyond comparison? Yes, there is. It is picked that up in Revelation 21. Brothers and sisters, more than resurrection bodies, even more than a new heaven and earth, more than anything, we will have God himself. God will dwell with his people. We will be with him forever. The Lord of glory himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the God who is, the God who was, the God who forever will be, the Almighty, we will be with Him. The one for whom we were made, the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of our hopes and our dreams and desires, we will finally see Him. We will finally be with Him forever. Brothers and sisters, no matter what suffering you go through in this life, consider that one day you will know the bliss of finally being with God. God will give you the greatest treasure of all. He will give you himself. Beloved, you will not get to heaven and say that the suffering was not worth it. God is no one's debtor. No one ever outgives or outserves God. Paul knew this. That's why he could say, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Paul goes on in verse 18. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Because of this great glory to come, Paul says that he doesn't look at the things that, is, that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And that sounds like a paradox. But when Paul speaks of looking, he's speaking of fixing our attention on something. What Paul is saying here is that he doesn't fix his attention on the things that he sees now. He doesn't fix his attention on the sufferings and trials that are around him now. But he fixes his attention on the things that are unseen in the sense that he doesn't see them yet. Okay, on the glory to come that he doesn't see yet. It's like driving down a road and there's a, a sharp bend in the road ahead of you. You can't see what's around the bend, but you know that there's something there. All you can see is what's ahead of you and what's around you. Paul says that he fixes his attention on the glory to come, which is around the bend, which he cannot yet see, which he cannot yet experience. And that doing that enables him to persevere through the suffering that he does see, that he does experience. And the reason that he perseveres is that he knows that those things that he sees are transient. They will pass away. But those things that are coming around the bend, the glory that he cannot see yet, that, that is eternal. But we, we must confess that it is difficult to fix our attention on the things to come that we cannot yet see. The promises of God, as glorious as they are, often seem distant and unreal compared to the all-consuming nature of the trials that we are currently going through. I've been convicted by how much I need to grow in fixing my attention on the glories to come. I believe we, we all need to, to grow in this. Can I suggest three ways that we can grow in fixing our eyes on the things that are unseen? Three ways to help us fix our, our eyes on the glory to come. First, fill your mind and your heart with Scripture. He spent time fellowshipping with God in his word. Here is God, where God makes his promises to us. And then just read your favorite bits of the Bible. Read all of scripture and you will see shafts of the glory to come. Read the book of, of Judges and see the patience and long-suffering nature of a holy God to people who don't deserve his love. Read the book of Luke and see the tenderness of Jesus as he reaches out to touch the leper just before he heals him. Read the book of Isaiah and see the, the God who is sovereign over the course of human history and who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Read scripture daily and see glimpses, see previews of the holy, patient, tender king that our God is. And let your heart beat faster at the thought of finally seeing him fully and being with him forever. Here's a second suggestion for fixing your eyes on the thing, fixing your eyes on things unseen. Press into the life of your local church. See, the church is the temple of God where God dwells in and with his people. So don't be on the fringes of the church. Become a member of the church if you're not one already. 
have, have sincere, open relationships with members of the church so that when the trials come, your brother or sister can comfort you and gently lift your head up and, and remind you of the glory to come. To press in and see glimpses of the glory of God as people who outwardly have nothing in common sacrificially love and serve one another. Here's a third and final way that we grow in fixing our eyes on the things that are unseen. And this is not something that we do. No, it's something that God himself does in his wise and his good providence as he brings suffering into our lives. You see, your suffering and your trials that you go through are the very things that, we, that cause you to hope more fervently in the glory that is to come. Can I show you this as we close? Just turning your Bibles back to chapter 1. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. So this is, this is Paul at the beginning of his letter telling the church about some trials he had experienced in Asia. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. At this point, you want to stop and ask, what? But Paul, in chapter 4, you said that you were perplexed, but not driven to despair. Here you're saying that you, you despaired even of life itself. So is Paul contradicting himself here? Well, we'll keep on reading. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul learned through his suffering in Asia not to trust in himself, but to trust in God and in his promise to raise his people from the dead. The purpose of Paul's suffering in Asia was to make him grow in looking at things unseen. Paul learned through his weakness to look to the things that were unseen, so that by chapter 4 he could say that he was perplexed but not in despair, and by chapter 12 he could say that he even boasted in his weakness. My brother and sister, your trial is weakness, yes, that you will endure by the sustaining power of God. But your trials are also the means through which God will grow you in your ability to fix your eyes on the things unseen. Trials help to loosen our grip on the here and now. Even through your suffering, the Lord will teach you that this world is not your home and he will cause you to desire to be with him in your heavenly home. Even because of your suffering, you will grow and you will fix your eyes on the glory to come that you do not yet see. Paul's suffering was not evidence against his apostleship, just the opposite. Paul pleaded with the Corinthian church not to reject his apostleship and thus his message. Even today, rejection of the apostleship of Paul is rejection of inspired scripture and the gospel message. Most Christians will not suffer to the same extent that Paul did. But you and I will often seem like jars of clay. Okay, however, contrary to the criticisms of Celsus, this in no way distract, detracts from the truth of the gospel message. In fact, 
The frailty of the vessel is God's design so that the beauty of the gospel message can be more clearly seen. Okay, as the endurance and holiness of God's people is seen in the midst of their suffering, the inestimable worth and value of God is also seen. My brother and sister, glory is coming around the bend. Okay, glory that far surpasses any trials that we will go through in this world. Just around the bend, just around the corner, when Jesus returns or calls you home, you will meet your Savior. Okay, and God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would press these truths deep into our hearts. Please deepen our, deepen our affections for you, strengthen our faith in you, and give us grace to persevere with joy as we trust your wise and good providence and as we hope in the glory that is to come. In Jesus' name.